continuing on with the church today. And so for the past several weeks, we've went through the origin of the church. We've talked about the definition. We've talked about the purpose of the church. And last week, we kind of started to move our way into the government of the church, i.e. the leadership structure of the church. And primarily, it is uh, revolving around two main offices, that being elders, which we discussed last time. So we kind of had to push pause. So just kind of as a recap, if we kind of had to boil down the role of elder and to understand it, is we can understand the elders are the ones who have the spiritual authority in the church. Okay. Pop quiz, how many elders do we have here at Flint Hills? Anybody? 10, 20, four. Four, yes. Whoever, I, I missed it. Somewhere, there you go, four. Ding, well done. Okay, can you name them? No, I won't make you So here at Flint Hills, we do. We have four elders, two of which are in this room, which makes my job all harder, right? <laughs> that can be a good thing too, okay? Because with being the spiritual authorities, we talked about the fact that one of the main tasks that they have is they do shepherd the flock. They are the teachers. They're the ones that instruct us in right doctrine and combat false doctrine, okay? So they look after us. They keep us. They pray for us. That is their kind of role. Now, without going too much further, let's talk about the second office that we see within the church, and that being the office of deacons, okay? We have the deacons in the church. And here I'll play the game again. How many deacons do we have here at Flint Hills? Mm. This one might be a little bit harder. Is it two? It's more. Seven. It's less. Five? It's more. Six? <laughs> yes! You got it. Okay, now, according, now, okay. I cheated because in my head I was like, okay, wait, I know that person is, I know that one is, I know that one is. I went to the church website. Okay, there. So I cheated. I went and I looked just to make sure. Okay. But yes, currently right now we have listed as six. All right. What's that? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So deacons. What are we talking about here? Well, it comes from the word, as you can see in your handout there, diakonos which means minister or servant. So anytime that you have this word appear, it's translated deacons, ministers, service, it has that service orientation around it when it's explained within the scriptures. Now, when we see the office of deacon kind of being um, explained, exhibited within the scriptures, one good place to look at is Acts 6, 1 through 6. Okay, now I'm going to read a little bit of this here. And... Well, let me go ahead and give you this so that you can see this as I read. When we talk about deacons, their function is that, among other things, they provide for the material needs of the church. Material needs. That's kind of how their office functions and works. But we're going to talk now, looking at Acts 6, how that works within conjunction with the elders. Okay? Now, you're going to see that this isn't in... 
your handout specifically. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, feel free to, but I'm also going to read it, okay? So Acts 6, 1 through 6. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, and whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, I don't know if I said that right, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Okay, push pause. So, if you noticed, did you hear the word deacon at all in those passages? No, right? And that's why there's a little bit of debate around this, that some people say, well, this isn't the origin of deacons. We're not necessarily going to bridge into that. But what I think this passage does do is it gives a good example of the function of the deacons, what it kind of looks like to see them in action. And that points to this primarily of the material needs. So as I said in this passage, you have this instance where there seems to be a dispute over the distribution of food within the church. Some people are saying, for instance, the Hellenists, hey, we're not getting enough. Some are getting enough. There's this kind of conflict going on. So the apostles of the church come together and they say, look, it's not that we are above serving tables. It's the fact that if we do, then we have to basically stop the gospel ministry that's going on here. And we could all admit that, yes, providing for the needs of the church is extremely important. But at the end of the day, the ultimate goal is to make sure that the gospel is spread. That's the higher good, the highest good, I guess you could say. Okay. So it's not that we're above it, but we need to find men who that are, what did it say? Full of the spirit and of wisdom, good repute. So these men have excellent character. They are of the faith that can then execute this need that has arisen. And that's basically what we're looking at here. So with deacons, that's how they function. They're providing for those material needs. So how does that flesh out? Well, it fleshes out, for instance, in our church. We have our deacons, they look after our grounds. We have them in different ministries. Um, let me see here, Floyd, you're one of our deacons. Could you give a real brief synopsis maybe just of some of the things you've done as a deacon? We have control of the material things for the church. Excellent, see, it's perfect, that's right. I, as my job is Good Samaritan Ministry, and right now I'm looking to, <clears throat> I've been given the opportunity to uh, youth have a, I don't know what to call it, pavilion. Yeah, pavilion outside. And then there's seven of us and several of the guys are in charge of the building and the grounds and several are in charge of the new sign. It's just whatever the elders lay on our plate. There you go. But then in conjunction with that, you see that then as they perform their offices, the elders then are now free <clears throat> to the preaching and teaching of the gospel. Okay? Mm -hmm. So, bless Floyd. I caught him totally off guard. Thank you. <laughs> you did really well. Thank you. <laughs> Just call on you right out the shoot. Okay. Character. Character is key, right? So if you look in here, you see another listing from 1 Timothy 3. 
kind of like what we looked at with the elders. And a lot of these are kind of parallel, very similar, or are similar characteristics. The elders and the deacons within their character, very much alike, okay? We see that they are men of dignity. They're not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine. They're not fond of sordid gain, i.e. they're dishonest or greedy. Can you imagine how bad a character flaw that would be in a deacon? Yep. If the elders say, here are these funds, execute this task, and then they start slipping it in their pocket. That's a no-go, okay? So, um, they hold to the mystery of the faith. That is, they practice what they proclaim. They're tested, tested. If you get to know some of our deacons, you'll see that they are men who, even in their careers, have done really well with management. They are ones that you can entrust a task to, and they will hold it in their hands, and they will control it, they will execute what you're asking them to do. If they were very forgetful, not good management, that's not so grand. So they've already been tested and proven in the past. You can look at them, see their track record, and be like, yep, that's good, okay? Um, they have one wife, managers of their household. They're again that managerial aspect. So if their households are in chaos and they can't manage their own households, that then leads like, okay, well, if I gave you more responsibility, how would you handle that, right? It could become a problem. I've kind of already hinted at this, but we'll go ahead and ask the question. What is the key difference between deacons and elders? Key difference. You might flip back and forth between your list. Teaching. Teaching. Exactly. Yeah. And it's not to say the deacons don't have the ability to teach. Mm -hmm. Some of our deacons are actually excellent teachers. Very, very, very good. But the primary task of teaching largely revolves around the elders. Okay? And you're saying, wait a minute, you're up here teaching. I'm not an elder, and I am not a deacon. So also within the church, we have those who teach in our adventure clubs, in our Sunday schools, or like the opportunity that I have here. But it is under the headship of the elders. Anybody who is teaching is always being watched and vetted by the elders, okay? Which gives me comfort in the regards of if I slip up and I say something, hopefully it's out of confusion, or well, or should I say out of my misunderstanding, Scott and Dave will probably interject and they'll be like, you mean this, right? And he's like, yes, I do. I'm not sure if that's, I'm not sure if that's, that's exact enough. To oh, okay. <laughs> what would you say the correct, okay? So they're watching all of that teaching that's happening within the church. But up at the pulpit, it's Dave who's leading us and guiding us in the word of the Lord every day, or every Sunday. Okay? So deacons, elders. Okay? That's kind of our government. Any questions revolving around that? I do have one. You do have one. Yeah, Fire away. I'm sorry. So, from my background, in okay. terms of deacons, I obviously, biblically, don't think... Um, how do I format this? I don't think the Bible allows for... Um, I don't think the Bible categorizes eldership as a position for women. Okay. But I haven't seen, I, I have seen in my life and within like the churches that mm -hmm. I've attended that there are female deacons, including, I mean, historically the ones, and like the ones specifically encouraged and told to continue on mm -hmm. by Paul. So how do you, how do you, how do you reconcile how this? How do you reconcile this concept of, okay, it says, it says men of dignity, sure. Yep. But then also there have clearly been female deacons and, and 
female deacons who have done a great job because Paul the apostle told them, "Hey, great job." Um, so, so how do we how do we reconcile these two things and all, you know make sure we're honoring everybody involved? Well asked. Good. Okay. Let's open your Bibles. Okay. Let's go to this passage of the description of deacons. Hopefully, we can kind of glean some of this. And if not, I also have my fellow elders here that can help me. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, we'll be just fine here. Okay. So, First Timothy three. We see qualifications for elder, or uh, excuse me, for elders and for deacons, but deacons primarily starts in eight. Okay. So, with elders, you see a lot of description of he must be the manager. He. We see a lot of that. The key point, because I came across this too, and in some of my reading, I was actually surprised to find out, for instance, if I understand his position correctly, I always want to caveat that because I haven't had a one-on-one conversation with him, John MacArthur actually holds that women can serve in the office of a deacon. Mm -hmm. And it comes pivotably at the verse of, let me find it here. I think it is, yeah. Yep, their wives, okay? That portion there can also be translated just women. Mm -hmm. So MacArthur will put forward the point, if I understand his position correctly, is he's kind of saying, hey, here's qualifications of deacons, here's guys, but ladies, also you in this office, you should behave in this way as well. So there is kind of a debate. Is this portion of scripture describing the wives of deacons or is it women in general? And that can obviously open up the interpretation, okay, do we open this office up and do we understand the scriptures correctly? Women can serve as a deacon, i.e. a deaconess, or is it something that's primarily for the men? Okay. So I'm going to bridge the topic with that. I think at our church here, we would interpret that pointing at the wives of the deacons. Okay. I kind of had a brief conversation with Dave and Scott via email on this when I found this. I was like, whoa, what, uh, how do we, I don't know, you know? So um, it is a debatable portion of scripture, but I think when we look at this, it's pointing towards the wives of the deacons. And some of the information that I kind of came across with that is, if you think about it, obviously husband and wife are very closely related. So what the husband is experiencing in ministry, sometimes it also bleeds over into the wife. So for instance, if she is not dignified if she is a slanderer, right? That's not a good thing to have in somebody who has been trusted with care and who the congregation is coming to and talking hard things over, right? So that's kind of where we would stand is that this passage in particular is pointing at the wives of the deacons. This is something that we should see in them. It's not an exact answer, I know. Leo, do you have to Yeah. Do they not also, in the next verse, say let deacons be the husband of one wife. Exactly. So if saying, obviously, if the male is the husband, the woman is the wife. So if they're pointing to that in the next verse, then wouldn't it also point to men being deacons? Yeah, and that's kind of where I stand right now is as I read this passage, it, if I switch from wives to women, it's almost like there's this clunkiness mm-hmm. to the passage. And when we just simply read it and take it for it is, how it is, it just seems to flow into under, be understood correctly as pointing towards the wives of the deacons. Okay. Yeah. And that's really good. And I think, I agree with you. And I think now, I mean, like I said, the follow-up to that is, unfortunately, I don't have the verse 
specifically, and mm -hmm. somebody, I'm sure somebody does, but there is a verse in which Paul specifically congratulates and, and encourages a deaconess yes. uh, by name. Um, and so I, I actually agree with you at least to some extent on this verse, but I, I have to ask, I mean, just hmm? contextually, Throughout the Bible, I mean, there, there seems to have been, and I don't know if this is a Deborah situation. I don't know if there's any way to know that. Yeah. I can address that one. It's uh, Romans 16.1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe. The um, ESV says a servant of the church at um, Sencria. Um, deacon could also be just translated servant. So she's just commended for her her service it's not necessarily assigning the office to her and that, and that being said I mean women are very valuable precious servants it's just the official role of deacon is it expanded to them or not and obviously there can be space between our position and John MacArthur's I mean there's plenty of room for disagreement on it but that's just kind of when I at least kind of surveyed the scripture those are the conclusions that I've come to um, but I think at our church, I mean, we, we definitely delegate a lot of responsibilities to women. I mean, we're doing the Women Equipping Women this Friday night and mm -hmm. put on by women, led by women, you know, to minister to women. And I think there's a lot of assignments given to women. And I think some of these qualifications, not only of just of deacons' wives, but even elders themselves, we look for in the type of women that we put in charge of certain things. Yeah. But, we're just, but that's something that we have the elder prerogative to make. Uh, we're not commanded to have this office at our church, like let's say deacons. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's key is that qualifications, there's just not for deacons, not just for elders. Those characteristics are something that should, should be seen yeah. and should be striven for amongst all of us. It doesn't just go to them. Mm -hmm. okay. I would also add that <clears throat> if we are really approaching our faith walk with humility, why do we need titles? Yeah. You know, we're, we are all God's servants, and unfortunately, people with titles can get big heads. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think God knows our hearts, and I think we just, I think we take on our roles with humility and not get hung up with titles. Yeah. And there can be a joy in knowing who our leaders are. I mean, that provides a good function. I've been on work sites. For instance, so I'm an electrician by trade. So I've been on work sites where there's a whole bunch of chiefs, so to speak, mm -hmm. and nothing gets done. <laughs> but you get a couple really good ones, and that provides motivation. And you see that job come together amazingly. Mm -hmm. So headship can actually be an awesome thing. Mm -hmm. It really can be. I think it's, it's really important to understand, like, if there's a church that has deaconesses, that is not in any way a sign of unfaithfulness to scripture mm -hmm. or women are trying to take over or like they're looking at this and they're trying to honor it and, and honor yeah. their women and mm -hmm. in the best way possible too. And they've just chosen a slightly different way than we have. And yeah, like great. Good for them to your own mastery, stand and fall. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. It's just raining the men sometimes. <laughs> 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 well, no, no Sorry. comment. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You have to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I I'm a woman. Agree. I can say that, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, exactly. We know that you want to take over. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's 
Genesis. We are. And so, like, for me, I, I want a, de- a male deacon because I want that leadership. I want, and elders, you know, I want, I want to be able to go to them and seek their, their wisdom and their advice. Because Which starts in the home also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And your this household. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I'll say another thing, as far as how deacons work in a church, there are so many different ways that it's been done. Mm-hmm. Like some churches have deacon boards. Like if you go to Grace Community Church, John MacArthur's church, they have like this huge list mm-hmm. of like a hundred deacons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that they have assigned. Some people might have an yeah, so there there's just a lot more flexibility to the office and role mm-hmm. of deacon. Mm-hmm. But I think if you call somebody deacon they have to hit, hit these qualifications. Mm-hmm. Well, Jerry may not be out for some of it, but I do think that's a good explanation. Absolutely. Quick question. Yes. Does do the most? I guess does our church? I don't know, but does our church put somebody in a deacon role and then to an elder role, or is it just straight to elder role? Mm, okay. <clears throat> I'm just curious. First, be a deacon, then be an elder. Yeah. Or is it just straight to elder? If I understand correctly, it's not that they have to hold the office of deacon first. Mm-hmm. Am I correct? Because yeah, Scott, for instance, I don't think you were a deacon before you were an elder, right? Correct. He just went, Phew. no. Straight down the top. I'm not sure Did you guys catch that? So it's not like deacon is a junior elder. It's a totally different role, different yeah. responsibilities. Didn't fit my lifestyle at the time with the kids at home, <coughs> so I resigned. Came back as a deacon later. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Thanks for the Yeah. Yeah, I would just say from the elder perspective, having like a, a really good functioning deacon role is we're able to clear all kinds of space in our meetings. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. game changer. It's been really nice. So, they run their own thing. They have like security, all these other things, and we just kind of, we clear a few things, but we even give them a large budget to work with um, called the Capital <coughs> Improvement Fund, and they, so they manage it, and it's been really helpful for us, um, so that we can focus more on um, doctrinal statements, we're looking at redoing some elements of the bylaws, uh, shepherding concerns, so um, a good strong deacon board just helps us to do our better, our job better. So, you're going to see a giant list on the back. Huge paragraphs. Theories of government. Oh, yeah. I don't want to dive too heavily into this. <laughs> In the regards of, I do want to get to the next section here in ordinances. And that's not to say that this isn't important. But here's what I would encourage you as we kind of close up government structure within the church. Is maybe go through these read through them, kind of understand how this works. If you have a systematic theology by Wayne Grudem, if you don't, we sell them in the library. <coughs> really good book, by the way. So is MacArthur's, just it's personal self. But he does a great job going through this section and actually gives you visuals of how this works. But in essence, what you're kind of looking at with the Episcopal, the Presbyterian, and the Congregational, is there are different church structures out there that kind of work within a hierarchy. 
kind of a pyramid down kind of idea is so for instance I'm just gonna this is gonna be really bad hopefully it doesn't look like the pizza we ran into a couple weeks ago but you may have said higher office like an archbishop okay for instance I think it's in the uh, is it the president what's the first one Episcopal I believe oops I flipped the page yeah Episcopal okay and then what you have under said archbishop that higher office you might have some bishops or a bishop himself, who then, in turn, is going to be over several churches, okay? And those churches, in turn, are actually led by a rector or what we may call a priest, okay? So you can kind of see how this pyramid's down. And then those rectors, those priests, are over, say, a congregation. Uh, I went from squares to circles to squares to circles. You get the idea. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Now, in some of these, I really wanted to get here early and like draw it all out and then flip the board. It didn't happen. So, <laughs> but basically, the idea behind some of these is either you have authority trickling down, and then the authority structure kind of dictates doctrines, dictates offices, however all that leadership goes, and then finally, it's at the bottom of the congregation. The other forms of these governments, you may see that it's actually the congregation that say then elects their ruling body, their elders, right? Then once the elders kind of make that spot, then some of those elders might be chosen to be part of a session or a general assembly or just an assembly. And that's kind of like the higher office that say would be over the churches in a whole city. Okay, so Lauren and I, we come from the Nazarene Church, and this is a thing. We would actually have several choices of elders, and we would all cast the ballot in order to do that. And then they would kind of go to that higher office of a region, or say a state. It could even be like uh, one of our pastors. He was elected, and I think he was like over all of the Pacific was his. So I think he was maybe even got to be stationed out of Hawaii. So. Darn. <laughs> That's too bad, right? So it was kind of a, a joke in our church that it would always be our pastors. We actually went through, I think, like four pastors in 10 years because they kept getting elected to these higher offices mm. kind of thing. So that just that creates, like, insecurity, you know? It's like, can't can't bond, right? Mm -hmm. So anyways, or at least that's how I operate. But, uh, yeah. So. Pros and cons to each, okay? So maybe take some time, read through those. But I want to get to ordinances of the church for the remainder of our time here today. So when we talk about ordinances, a little bit of room. Ordinances. Some of you guys are very familiar with this. So I'll go ahead and ask the question, what are the two ordinances that we practice here at Flint Hills? What are they? Baptism and Lord's Supper. Boom, there it is, okay? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are the two ordinances. Now it's interesting because these things can also be called the sacraments, okay? And that comes from the Latin word sacramentum. And the reason that we don't necessarily use that verbiage is that it has a strong connotation within the Roman Catholic Church and can mean very different things. The way those things are practiced, if you have done any reading within the Roman Catholic Church, it's very different than what we do here. And it is actually a fascinating reading, and I would encourage you to educate yourself on that. So that if you have that good conversation with, say, a family member or a friend, you already understand where they're coming from. In that difference, kind of like bishop, not meaning chess, 
was about last time. Anyways, <laughs> so we want to kind of distance ourselves in that verbiage because they can mean very different things. So for us, we use the word ordinance coming from an order, okay? Baptism. Let's chat about that. First off, one thing that we know about baptism is that it's a command. We are given the command to be baptized. We see this with Jesus' example in Matthew 3, 13. We also see in numerous other passages throughout the New Testament that we are to be baptized. We are supposed to do it. And we'll talk a little bit more about that within the meaning and such. It's also reinforced within the epistles. And we see, for instance, I'm going to read just one of these passages here, Acts 2:38. It says, And Peter said to them, Repent. And we know that when we talk about repentance, faith and repentance are kind of, they're always akin to one another. They form conversion, that double-sided coin that we talked about way back when in salvation. Repent and be baptized. So you are to be baptized if you come to the faith. So we're to be baptized. But not only is it, like I said, a command, let's look at the meaning. Because we need to understand some of the meaning of baptism. Okay, First off, it's an identification with Christ. So when we see that phrase, and we hear it often, in the name of Jesus Christ, I just read that a second ago, at that time, this is like literally a technical term signifying ownership. Christ now owns us, right? We are his. He is our Lord and Savior now. So we identify with Christ. Romans 6, 4, it equates baptism with Christ's saving work. Could I get a reader? Is it not? That's not in yours. Oh, man. I didn't write it. Is it? 6-4? Yeah, 6-4. Is it written in there? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes, that's the one. Please. Thank you. Usually I write a word extra next to it, so then I can follow and I make sure that I'm in line with you guys. So I was like, oh, no, I missed it. Okay, so... There is that identification with Christ, okay? But also, not only is there identification with Christ, we have identification with the church as a whole, right? So we all, united together, form the body of Christ. That's one um, analogy that we use within the church. And so I'll go ahead and read this one, 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. So also is Christ. So individually, we are all individuals, but corporately we do form the body of Christ. And so in our baptism, we also identify with one another. We all are baptized. It is something that we all share in common. Okay? Think of the unity of the body in the regards of when we have a baptism. Here, it's, I think it's actually very joyous. We get excited about it. We get to hear the testimony of said person who's going up there, right? And then that moment of baptism, I don't know, there's just, there's a joy amongst us. Does that make sense? Maybe you've experienced that, mm -hmm. okay? Um, it's kind of that initiative right within the church. It's an identification with the church. Acts 16.33 speaks kind of this uh, command and then directly after. Could I get a reader there? And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. Yeah, talking about the Philippian jailer, immediately he was baptized, identified with the church. 
Another thing that we look at is there's a symbolic of spirit baptism. It's symbolic of that spiritual baptism that happens within Christ. Because spiritually, we have been baptized, i.e. we use that in the terms of being completely and utterly immersed within Christ. Christ is our Lord of every nook and cranny of us. We don't say, you know, well, you get 70, I get 30. That's not how this works, right? We are completely and utterly spiritually immersed into Christ. Mm-hmm. Let's read these two passages that point towards that. Galatians 3.27. Get a reader again. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Yeah. Colossians 2.12. I get another reader. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Good. I liked this quote when we're talking about this um, spiritual symbolism. It's, it said it this way. When the candidate for baptism goes down into the water, it is a picture of going down into the grave and being buried. Coming up out of the water is then a picture of being raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. Baptism thus very clearly pictures death to one's old way of life and rising to a new kind of life in Christ. That's why you hear all these analogies used within baptism, you know, being buried and raised, just as Christ was buried and raised. There's that close kinship that you see within that. Efficacy. So does baptism have some effect upon us or do something for us. Keep that in mind. That's a little bit of a controversial topic in some regards, but what I want to point forward is this. Some will say that baptism and salvation are closely related, okay? Very close to each other. The problem is is that it gets misconstrued and the two kind of get intertwined, i.e. baptism brings about salvation. And so when we go that far, we know we've started to err on what scripture teaches us. So we need to kind of pump the brakes and say, that's not what it does, okay? It's a representation of the internal transformation that has happened outward, okay? It's how we can see a spiritual truth. Let me put it this way, Uh, instrumental. You see that word, it says, does not mean that it is the instrumental in er, in salvation. We'll see if I get this right, Dave. But if I understand correctly, you have what's called an instrumental cause, okay? I'm gonna get kind of deep here, maybe. But the idea of it is this, I'll give this example. You have, say, a block of marble here, okay? And I, this sculptor, want to take this block of marble and transform it into a beautiful statue, okay? In order to bring about the change of the marble into a statue, I have to have tools. I have to have a means to chip away at that rock. My hammer and chisel would be called the instruments that bring about the change upon that rock that form that statue. Does that make sense? Okay. So when we talk about instrumental cause, what we're not saying is that baptism is the means that brings about salvation. So we need to differentiate from that. Differentiation. Differentiate. There we go. We have to make sure we understand that. Okay? It's not the instrumental. All right. So um, let's take a look at this uh, as far as how folks can kind of misconstrue some of this here. I'm going to read this first one here, Acts 2.38 said, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So some will take this and will say, Okay, repent and be baptized. So you have to be baptized in order to obtain salvation. It's 
taking the text too far. You see the same thing in Acts 22.16. Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins. Some will take this verse to literally translate as in the baptism is literally the thing that washes away the sins. And obviously we don't hold to that here. Okay, We would, we would say that's not the correct interpretation of that. Okay, So, faith is always explicitly mentioned along with baptism, but also another key logical point is that sometimes you see faith and no baptism is mentioned. So we have to make sure that we don't go so far as to say that baptism brings about salvation. Okay. All right. Um, let's see here. How about, let's move a little bit further here on the subjects of the who should be baptized. Given everything that we've read and seen some of what we've seen here, who should be baptized? Super easy. Yeah. I think it's anybody who made a conscious choice to follow to follow God. So and anybody who's I don't want to say in right mind, because none of us are really in right mind. Um, but I'd argue anybody who can make, like I said, the conscious choice to say I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm going to follow God, and I'm going to turn my back on my sin. So somebody who's made a true profession of faith. Yeah, which They're, is why I don't think babies. Yeah, you see, you looked ahead there. Yeah, because then that kind of leads into what they call, I think it's pedo-baptism. Um, pedo-baptism means the baptizing of infants. We don't hold to baptizing of infants for the simple fact that never do you see in the New Testament a command to baptize infants. Usually this, uh, those that hold to this position, if I remember correctly, I think R.C. Sproul held this position. Yeah, he doesn't anymore. But yeah. Oh, he didn't? <laughs> Did he? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well played. <laughs> He's now with the Lord for those yeah. of you that are, you know. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> He, he's, he's, he doesn't do that anymore? <laughs> so, yeah, you'll see good debates about this. Um, I think actually R.C. and MacArthur did have kind of a one-on-one debate. And it is, it's fun to see them kind of go back and forth because they, they, were, are, they were good friends, will be again one day, um, in glory before the Lord. So um, this idea comes from the fact that you'll see whole households being baptized in the New Testament. Um, I think in the instance of Peter and Cornelius, I think would probably be a good example, goes and it's just like the whole household was baptized and someone will be like, well, kids were involved in that. And it's like, well, it just says household. It didn't say, and there was a four-year-old and a five-year-old and, you know, a 13-year-old. It doesn't say anything like that. So that's kind of digging in a little bit too deep and you're pulling out something that's not there. Okay? I would say I really appreciated the role of elders in this. Uh, Cole and I were both baptized babies coming from the Catholic and Lutheran churches. And having trust in elders who understand scripture much more than we do was really great in leading us to be baptized again as adults, even though we had been, you know, Christians for several years before that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it was really nice. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah. And you will see instances of that. And I think that's actually one of the questions here is you, you may have a friend, you start getting into conversations with them, and they realize, look, I did, I professed faith way back here. But I have lived a life of utter immorality since then. Ah, that was not authentic. But now, now I know for sure. And so then having a good conversation with the elders about, should I be baptized again? That's not a bad thing to ask. Should, right? 
they can kind of help you work through that. I think you talked about um, the importance of the confession, but I think within the confession of faith, there has to be true repentance and belief. I mean, you really, really need to see that fruit yeah. um, to understand what baptism is. So, like, um, we know that children can understand um, who the Lord is and can profess true faith. Mm-hmm. At what point do we typically ha- ask if they want to be baptized? Is that something they have to initiate, or do we have a certain time mm-hmm. that we would do that? Because it kind of talks about, like, immediately, but um, yeah. we baptize typically, like, five-year-olds or six-year-olds. That can be a really hard one, and I often think of that with, like, my kids. So my eldest, my daughter, Taylor, I can get her to say all the right things. And it's like, does that mean she's really a Christian? I don't think she's at that conscious level yet where she truly has made an affirmation. So I think it's not an exact science per se, but it is something that we should be looking for in our kids and we should always be nurturing it. I mean, the moment they're born, we should be ministering to them. But kind of judging when does that person actually have right understanding and that understanding has bridged into true faith, that can be kind of difficult and it depends on the age of the individual. And I know that's not exactly the greatest of answer. That's where you might want to talk with your elders about that <laughs> and get some kind of guidance. I have a recent example, Jason. Yeah. Our oldest grandson, two years ago, at the age of 10, came to Floyd, wanted to be baptized. And um, he said, well, we need to talk about this. I need to hear what you're understanding. He did. He could not verbalize his understanding. There you go. Two years later, we had the same question come up, and it was night and day. Yeah. He could absolutely express what was going on in his heart, and just the difference in him now, and Floyd so baptized him right before his 12th birthday, <coughs> but just the fruit that's flowing out of that expression of faith yeah. is amazing. Yeah. So That's super cool. And I would say, if we believed... And if it were true that grace comes to us through these ordinances, yeah. then keeping our children from these ordinances at the earliest possible time would be a cruelty. Mm-hmm. It would be keeping our children from coming to Jesus. But we do not believe, and the scriptures do not teach, that grace comes to us through the ordinances. Right. Grace comes to us through the Holy Spirit of God. And nothing we can do can keep our children from the Holy Spirit. And I think because of that, it does give us a lot of freedom to exercise wisdom and helping our children, and us assessing, and helping our children assess, are you ready to stand with the people of God? And to identify with them, and to testify not just to a, a cheerful waiting audience, but also to people who are hostile. I stand with Jesus. That's what this means. That's what being baptized meant in the old, like in Acts, from the very beginning. That's what it meant, is I'm willing to stand in front of the world and say, I'm with him, come what may. Um, and yeah, again, there's no grace that comes through that. But it's, it's planning your flag, and we want our kids to be old enough to make that decision and to be able to look back and say, that was my decision that I made mm-hmm. um, before the Lord. Sure. I've also wrestled a lot with even being able to stay, um, being able to vocalize things. Um, so, I mean, I was, I was baptized when I was like eight, and I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad age to be at, and I, was, I, could, I could tell you everything and then obviously did not go on for a while to live a life that reflected that. And so actually, to this day, I 
I've actually had some, some important conversations that I'm still debating whether or not to get baptized again. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, genuinely still, like, I have active conversations with important mentors in my life on a regular basis as to this sort of thing. Um, so, at the end, of the, I know I'm saved. Now, I don't know if I was saved when I was eight, and then I was given up to Satan for a time, you know, that I might come back to, to Christ. Um, I don't know if I wasn't saved at eight and haven't been saved for a while, wasn't saved for a while, and then I was saved. So really, there, I don't know if there is a specific answer in a lot of these circumstances, even, even when a kid can can say things, even when a kid can formulate uh, all the correct things, that, that doesn't always mean that they, that they are actually going to live out what they understand. They can understand it. I could understand it. That didn't mean I, I chose to live out what was right and what was true. And I am, I am now, and thank, you know, thank God, but... There's kind of that question. There's, you know, there's still kind of that question that I wrestle with on a pretty regular daily basis almost. And I think, I think everything that we're talking about in reference to children also does apply to adults in the sense that, it was mentioned earlier, but the, the profession of faith needs to be a credible profession of faith. That's why we don't do spontaneous baptisms. And we just, mm -hmm. oh, you're a believer, just right, just dunk you. Yeah, yeah, like, there needs to be that testing of faith to prove that it's genuine. Yeah. I'd say, too, one of the things, like, baptism doesn't have, like, inherent grace in it. Uh, but part of it is when you get baptized, and the reason why we do it publicly in front of church is you're basically making a declaration to everybody else um, that I'm planting my flag, this is where I am, and I'm no longer kind of on the outside looking in. I want to be considered uh, a member you know, of the universal body of Christ. And, and we, like we uh, tell people, if you want to join the church, you need to be baptized as a believer, because if you're not willing to declare yourself that publicly, then why would we recognize that locally? Um, so there, there is some, I think the, the grace is when you put yourself out there, I'm a believer, treat me like a believer, have expectations of a believer, minister to me like I'm a believer instead of an unbeliever. There is um, a different approach that everyone will have towards you from that moment on. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's good. I have a question about the being rebaptized. Okay. So every time you feel guilty, it's like, well, maybe I should get rebaptized. No, that's not it. That's your where your repentance comes in. Right. So one baptism, no, I was a child, but then I had to make my decision later in life where I was rebaptized. But what he was saying there is like, I don't know that. Baptize, baptizing and the baptizing every time you feel a little bit of guilt or feel like you haven't been following mm -hmm. is that not more repentance than there would be mm -hmm. the actual mm -hmm. baptism yeah and that kind of goes with that idea of does this actually wash away my sins right. like is this the means that my sins are cleansed up because we know that's not the case right yeah. it's Christ because we're all, all going to be there at one time or another yeah. we're not going to follow yeah I do really like the picture of the planting the flag because that is so since Hudson has become a Christian, yeah, I can say to him, 
So is that how a Christian responds? Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and really just seeing his heart yeah. and just understanding, it's like the light bulb goes off. Yeah. And he's like, oh, no. But no, we, we probably need to reevaluate that. So, so just being able to say that to him now, um, from mm -hmm. from Anna's heart, it's amazing because I can't say that to all of my yeah, mm -hmm. other grandchildren. So, um, and just being able to speak to him about scripture and we're memorizing scripture together, and so. Mm -hmm. And I'll just make a plug. You know, you have been convicted that you need to be baptized. Um, you know, talk to the elders, talk to somebody about it, and we can kind of walk you through the process of, you know, what we do. Um, if you haven't seen it before, we have people just compose a testimony that kind of tells their story. We kind of just make sure that you understand the gospel. And um, and I'd even say for those of you who, oh, I'm not sure if I was saved or not, I. Our solution is just walk with the Lord first, mm -hmm. focus on that, and we can deal with baptism later. You know, when you can look back and just think, yeah, looking back, I think this is what I need to do. But we don't want to have people like, you know, we don't want to baptize you five times. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, right. if you're six weeks old and you got baptized, then we say, you need to be rebaptized. Mm -hmm. Um if you were clearly under duress or pressure, like we'll give you this candy bar if you get baptized and you get baptized, we'll say, oh, yeah, right. there might be, there might be a point to that. But so we're, we're hesitant to re-baptize people because we don't want people to be unduly focused on it and, and think, yeah, I don't know. Like there's a book called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. The author was baptized five times. <laughs> wow. Yeah, but he kind of had like this OCD approach to every time he grew, he thought, I just became a Christian again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes, you know, you just grow. <laughs> and it's not that you just became a Christian again. It's just yeah. the grace of God is uniquely active. And, and sometimes when you get baptized, like you get baptized at 10 and you're a boy. And then at the age of 12, testosterone kicks in and you have this new wave of temptations that you didn't have before. That doesn't mean that you're unsaved at that point. You just have a, a different battle to fight. I've got how to get that out. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I have a place for it. I think, too, just the biblical language <clears throat> that, like we read, um, they're from, uh, from Romans about uh, that baptism is a picture of death and resurrection. So just as Christ died and then was resurrected, you new life from life. Um, there's that sense in which your baptism is a picture for you and everyone else that the person that you were died, that person died, and then you've been uh, born again. Right? You have a new life, you're a new creature in a sense. And so there's that element where it's not, it's more than just I'm joining, right? It's that there's the two parts to it. There's I'm starting, I'm being born again, I'm a new person, but also the person that I was has died. They're buried under the water and they're raised to, to new life there. And so there's a sense in which when someone's baptized, you want it, they need to clearly understand that what happened at conversion is being pictured there through baptism. 
Yeah, and you hear that in the testimonies that we heard before. There's usually that mm -hmm. conversation of, I used to be, I was, mm -hmm. and now I'm not. That can be hard if you, if, if you <coughs> understand the gospel, but you've grown up in a Christian home, and you've been guarded and protected. And so, and maybe people on the outside haven't seen a lot of the, the sins, haven't grown up into such mature fashion, right? That they yeah. Seen at home or seen in their class or at school or whatever, and so um, that person can still that that flesh can still be put to death, right? But but it takes I think like you said it takes a lot of wisdom to help the parents and the pastors and the, the, the young person time to to reflect on what do they believe and what's happening in their soul and what God's what God's doing. So. Okay. Let's push pause. Pick up with the Lord's Supper next week, okay? Good conversation. Thank you. All right, let's go ahead and pray, though, in closing. Father God, we do thank you very much for this time that we have gotten to come to your word and to uh, listen and learn and conversate over these um, topics. Lord, we do thank you for the leadership that we have here in our church at Flint Hills. Uh, Father God, please enable our elders, enable our deacons to perform the tasks of which you have ordain them to do and to do it well into your glory and father god may we as your body as the congregation come behind them and support them pray for them um, help in what way we can because lord we are a body we work together we work um, for you lord ultimately father we do thank you for baptism and it showing that outwardly the spiritual change that you have worked within us and so lord god we do thank you for your salvation, for your grace, um, and through Christ alone, Father God. And so we do proclaim that. We thank you. Father, please help us now to go to worship and to worship you. And uh, we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.